Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Salida, Colorado. Salida is nestled at the foot of the scenic central Colorado Rockies on the western bank of the Arkansas River at an elevation of 7,000 feet. It is the county seat and the most populous city within Chafee County. Originally inhabited by the Ute tribe and called Little Arkansas, the name was changed to Salida, the Spanish word for exit, in 1880 after the development of the railroad tracks through the area connecting Salida to other towns and cities across the region. Although the Spanish pronounce it Salida, the residents always pronounced it Salida. It was the gateway for travelers heading west during the 19th century. In the 1980s, Salida underwent a revitalization effort that helped preserve the town's historic buildings and landmarks. Its downtown is on the National Register of Historic Places, and it is Colorado's largest historic district. Today, Salida is thriving with a rich sense of history and a strong sense of community. The town has preserved its unique character and charm while embracing new opportunities for growth and development. Salida remains a popular destination for tourists. Not only can people enjoy the history, cuisine, and art galleries, they can also engage in outdoor activities such as paddleboarding, skiing, and mountain biking. Some are attracted to Salida for its pristine beauty, while others are attracted to the isolation. And in 2020, one family who moved to Salida to experience the great outdoors quickly came to realize that sometimes stunning scenery comes at a very steep price. On Sunday, May 10th, 2020, Mother's Day, at around 4.30 p.m., Martin and Jean Ritter were contacted by their neighbor's daughter. The girl explained that she and her sister were out of town and trying to get in touch with their mother, Suzanne Morphew, to wish her a happy Mother's Day, but could not reach her. She asked the Ritters to go to their house and check on her mom. 49-year-old Suzanne Morphew, her 52-year-old husband Barry, and her 16-year-old Macy lived in a 3,000-square-foot home on a fairly secluded seven-acre mountainous property adjacent to a national forest. The neighbors were off in the distance, so it wasn't just like walking next door. Jean Ritter went to the Morphew residence but could not find Suzanne. The Ritters then called Suzanne's husband, Barry, who was away on a construction job site in Broomfield, which is about 150 miles northeast of Salida. Barry said he too had tried unsuccessfully to get in touch with Suzanne, but it caused him even greater concern that his daughters could not reach their mother, especially on Mother's Day. Barry asked Jean to go back and look for Suzanne's mountain bike. He also asked the Ritters to call 911 if they couldn't find her. Jean went back to the Morphew's home, but did not see the bike or Suzanne. Jean's husband called 911 and reported Suzanne missing to the Chafee County Sheriff's Department. Jean then went back to Suzanne's home a third time and left notes for Suzanne to call in case she returned home. 
Barry left the job site in Broomfield and rushed home to Salida. That day, Deputy Damon Brown of the Chafee County Sheriff's Department was notified by dispatch to call Martin Ritter regarding a possible missing woman who was suffering from cancer. Deputy Brown went to the Morphew home and saw no signs of Suzanne. By 7 p.m., Deputy Brown spoke with Barry by phone, who said he was driving home. Barry told the deputy that he last saw his wife around 5 a.m. when he left for his landscaping job. Suzanne was asleep at the time. Barry estimated that his wife went missing between 8 and 9 a.m. He said Suzanne recently took up mountain biking, and that was the time she typically rode. Barry gave the deputy a description of her bike, helmet, and windbreaker. He also gave the deputy her phone number and said his wife typically took her phone with her. Barry said Suzanne was going through cancer treatments for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, something she successfully battled previously. Barry and Suzanne Morphew both grew up in Alexandria, Indiana. They began dating after high school and both attended Purdue University. Barry was drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays, but his career ended when he was injured. The two were married in 1994 and had two daughters, Mallory and Macy. Suzanne taught middle school before becoming a full-time mom, and Barry worked as a commercial landscaper, eventually starting his own business. He was also a volunteer firefighter. In 2018, Mallory went off to college in Colorado. With only their then 14-year-old daughter at home, the Morphews decided to follow their older daughter to Colorado and move to Salida. They purchased a beautiful home and began a new life, quickly making friends. On Mother's Day 2020, when their mother went missing, Mallory and Macy were coming back from an out-of-town trip with friends. Mallory's boyfriend came to the Morphew home with his father to help everyone search for Suzanne. Deputy Brown walked through the Morphew residence and saw no signs of forced entry. He found a well-kept and orderly home, with the exception of one bedroom that had a bed with no bed sheets. The deputy also saw a 22 caliber round of unfired ammunition on the floor next to the bed in the master bedroom. He looked under the bed to see where the round had come from and saw what appeared to be a rifle storage case. Sergeant Mullinax of the Chafee County Sheriff's Department joined Deputy Brown and asked dispatch to ping Suzanne's phone. According to the phone company, it was turned off. At around 7.30 that night, Deputy Brown and Sergeant Mullinax drove down County Road 225 from Highway 50 near the Morphew's home looking for Suzanne. They were concerned that she may have been injured in a biking accident. They then spotted a mountain bike lying close to the bottom of a ravine near a creek. Walking down the ravine calling Suzanne's name, they received no response. Mallory's boyfriend approached the ravine and identified the bike as being Suzanne's. Deputy Brown saw no indications of a crash. He saw no flattened vegetation where Suzanne might have fallen. There was no blood or damage to the bike. Back on the road, he saw no skid marks or brake marks leading off the remote road. Deputy Brown believed that the bike was purposely thrown at the location and for the first time thought that perhaps foul play was involved. At 8.42 that evening, Barry arrived at the scene and also confirmed it was his wife's mountain bike. The next day, Barry was interviewed by a sheriff's detective and repeated what he had told Deputy Brown the night before. He left his sleeping wife at the home at 5 a.m. 
and drove 150 miles to Broomfield for a construction job. Barry said his daughters were returning home from a camping trip. He reiterated that the day prior, he called his wife to wish her a happy Mother's Day and didn't get a response. He assumed it was because their residence had bad cell service. He texted her hours later, again with no response. When asked about their marriage, Barry told detectives that he and Suzanne had a good marriage, that he loved his wife very much, and wanted her found. That same day, Barry and Suzanne's daughters were interviewed separately. They said that they had last seen their mother on Tuesday before leaving on the road trip. They had last spoken to her Saturday, one day before the 911 call was made. When asked about their parents' relationship, one daughter denied any issues or concerns. The other daughter, and I'm pretty sure it was the 16-year-old, told detectives that Barry and Suzanne argued a lot. She said her parents were not doing well and that perhaps separation was best. When asked about whether Suzanne would leave her and her sister, the answer was an emphatic, never. This information, however, piqued detectives' curiosity. That same day, so one day after Suzanne disappeared, a Chafee County Sheriff's detective conducted a phone interview with a woman named Sheila. She was Suzanne's best friend and lived in Indiana. Sheila said she and Suzanne were in constant communication via text messages and Snapchat until Saturday, the day before Suzanne was reported missing. Sheila said Suzanne hadn't replied to two messages after 6 p.m. on Saturday, which concerned Sheila. On Sunday, Mother's Day, Sheila's daughter was getting married and Sheila said Suzanne had helped plan the event. Although she could not attend the wedding, Suzanne was going to watch it online. Sheila also forwarded the detective a text string between her and Suzanne that had taken place in March, two months before Suzanne's disappearance. It was clear by the text messages that Suzanne was stressed out. She said Barry was acting like Jekyll and Hyde, but he did not want a divorce. Suzanne said that her teenage daughter mentioned a restraining order and was weary of the tension between Suzanne and Barry. Suzanne texted that her daughter practically begged her to get a divorce. Sheila told detectives that she had been concerned about Barry's behavior and had given Suzanne a spy pen five months prior. It was designed to covertly record conversations. Investigators obtained a warrant to search the Morphew home. Barry said he kept his guns locked in a safe in the garage, but detectives found two rifles, one in a closet on the first floor and one in the garage, that were outside of the gun safe. They also found what they believed was blood on the apron of the driveway. The two vehicles belonging to Barry and Suzanne were seized for processing. They were fewer than 24 hours into the investigation, and detectives appeared to have focused on Barry. On May 13th, three days after Suzanne went missing, investigators found her bike helmet. It was a little less than a mile away from where the bicycle was located off Highway 50. Now, Kath, Highway 50 was the main ingress and egress for the Morphew home, so that's why detectives were kind of focused on it. The helmet was found about a mile and a half from their residence. Investigators continued to search the family home, a search that lasted days. They also issued search warrants for Barry and Suzanne's cell phones, iCloud accounts, and vehicles. This included the vehicle data recording devices for each car. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the FBI got involved, assisting with crime scene investigation, interviews, and evidence processing. Barry Morphew never hired a lawyer 
and spoke with any investigator who questioned him. It was estimated that he was interviewed by law enforcement on 30 to 40 occasions. A week after Suzanne went missing, Barry made an impassioned video pleading for his wife's return, and it was widely broadcast. He said he loved her and missed her, and the kids needed her. He said they would do whatever it took and pay any amount to get her back. Efforts to search for Suzanne continued. So did the search of the Morphew residence. Many items were taken from the residence, including an empty tranquilizer dart box from the Morphew garage. Investigators also found what they characterized as a cover for a tranquilizer dart. And Kath, it just looked like a, like a small sort of like plastic tip that you'd see over a sharp object. The dart cover was found in the dryer, along with sheets to the bed that had been stripped. The items were sent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Laboratory for testing. Barry explained to investigators that he was very familiar with tranquilizer guns and had used them for deer and elk, but had not done so in quite some time. Detectives learned from a dump of Barry's phone that he had deleted four texts, all of which an expert was able to recover. One was two weeks before Mother's Day when Suzanne went missing. It was from Suzanne and said, Oh, I'm sure your mistress has you all happy now. So you can say you love me, but bully me when you're with me. Yeah, that's love. But the message that really caught investigators' attention was sent by Suzanne on May 6th, just four days before she went missing. It said, I'm done. I could care less what you're up to and have been for years. We just need to figure this out civilly. To investigators, Barry's response to this text implied suicide. He wrote things like he was going to see his savior when he was dead and life on earth is a mere grain of sand compared to eternity. Armed with information from Suzanne's iCloud account, investigators saw that Suzanne sent a text to her sister two days later. It said, it's hard dealing with the harsh abrasiveness and having to show respect. He's also been abusive emotionally and physically. This same day, which was two days before Suzanne went missing, Suzanne wrote a note on her phone that said Barry had accused her of having a boyfriend. In fact, Kath, Suzanne had kept numerous notes on her phone detailing her unhappiness with her husband. Investigators now theorized that Suzanne had taken steps to separate from her husband and it threw Barry over the edge. Within two weeks after Suzanne went missing, detectives began excavating a local job site at which Barry had poured concrete. They were looking for evidence of murder, but found nothing. Ten days after Mother's Day, a sheriff's detective found the spy pen that Suzanne's friend Sheila had told them about. It was in a clothing bin in the master bedroom's walk-in closet. The detective also found a controller, headphones, and a USB cable. Three days later, the spy pen was delivered to the digital forensics unit of the Colorado Springs Police Department. Although some of the audio files had been deleted, two of the deleted files were retrieved. Detectives learned that Suzanne used the spy pen because she believed Barry was having an affair. However, they did not catch Barry in a compromising situation. In March, two months before Suzanne's disappearance, the pen was put in Barry's truck. As he drove, it recorded him listening to multiple episodes of Forensic Files. Detectives took note of the fact that one of the episodes included the killing of Vicki Hoskinson, who went missing after riding her bike. Her body was left outside for animals to scavenge, making it difficult 
to determine how she was killed. Barry also listened to the murder of Walter Scott, a man who went missing but was actually killed by his wife's lover. Another recording from the spy pen included an argument between Barry and Suzanne that took place two months before her disappearance. Suzanne can be heard saying that she's lived for years being told how I should think, how I should feel, how I should look, how I should act, what I should drink, what I shouldn't drink, what I should put in my body, what I shouldn't put in my body. Clearly, she was tired of what she perceived as Barry's controlling behavior. And on this recording, they were also arguing about money. But the recording that shocked detectives was the one captured three months before Suzanne disappeared. In it, Suzanne was speaking to someone named Jeff, and they were trying to make arrangements to see each other for Valentine's Day. Suzanne was heard saying, Jeff, come on. I'm the one who started the whole ball rolling. I mean, there's a lot that went on last week and I haven't told you about it and not good, not good stuff. So I really think he feels bad about that too. You are not a homewrecker. You are my lover and my sweet friend and the man I love dearly, okay? You know, this totally reminds me of the whole thing where if a boyfriend or husband accuses you of cheating, they're usually the one doing it. Seriously. Yeah. If I were accused of cheating, I'd be like, oh, I'm screwed. You're cheating on me. Oh, I thought you meant... (laughs) Yeah, no. I was caught. (laughs) Yeah, no, oh, no, 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 no. Nay, nay, fair maiden. So, this recording, of course, added a new dimension to the investigation. Now, detectives had to find Jeff. Search warrants were issued for all social media accounts as well as Google search histories. After six months of investigating more than 20 Jeffs possibly connected to Suzanne, they found the real Jeff living in Michigan. When confronted, he admitted to the affair, but said because he had a wife and children, he did not come forward. He said he was afraid of losing his job and hurting his family and told investigators he didn't believe his presence could add anything to the investigation. As it turned out, about a month after the Morphews moved from Indiana to Colorado in 2018, Suzanne sent a Facebook message to Jeff that said, Howdy, stranger. They were friends in high school who had a flirtation getting together once. The two began communicating regularly in 2018 via FaceTime. Jeff admitted to holding a torch for Suzanne. However, at one point, Jeff's daughter saw him talking to Suzanne, so Jeff said they had to stop speaking. He then, Kath, deleted all of his social media accounts and stopped communicating with her. Then, months later, around Christmas of 2018, Suzanne messaged Jeff through his LinkedIn account saying she was worried and was he okay. They began communicating again using a fake LinkedIn account, WhatsApp, which is encrypted, and FaceTime, eventually meeting up in person in 2019. Suzanne traveled to meet Jeff in five different states, ultimately taking the relationship to the physical level. They said they loved each other. Jeff, however, was not a suspect because he had an alibi. Investigators knew, based on credit card receipts, that he was not in Colorado when Suzanne disappeared. On Saturday, May 9th, 2020, the day before Suzanne disappeared, she and Jeff had 59 communications. At 2.30 that afternoon, Suzanne sent Jeff a selfie. It was the last photo taken of her, and detectives called it her proof-of-life photo. According to police, Jeff and Suzanne had no further communication after 2.30 p.m. that day. 
police began theorizing that perhaps Suzanne had been killed on Saturday, May 9th, but was not reported missing until Sunday. According to the data recovered from Barry's phone, detectives said that on Saturday, Barry's phone pinged at multiple locations on his property around 2.47 p.m. They believed that he was actually running around his property, but why? Their theory was that Barry had returned home on Saturday afternoon and decided to kill Suzanne. They believed he was hunting her, just like he used to do with deer and elk. They said that he was chasing her after he shot her with a tranquilizer dart. And by the way, Kath, it did not help that he had scratches on his arm the first time he met with law enforcement. And they were like, how'd you get those? And he goes, oh, uh, I, I think I ran into a tree. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, it was, it was from a tree limb. I think that was what it was. There was damage to the master bedroom door jam that appeared to indicate a struggle. Investigators confronted Barry with the phone data and Barry had no real explanation. He did say that he would shoot chipmunks around his property and maybe that was it. According to investigators, shortly after these odd pings occurred, Barry's phone went into airplane mode and stayed that way until 1017 that night. At this point, investigators believe that Barry was destroying evidence of his crime. Barry's phone again went into airplane mode at 4.32 in the early Sunday morning hours. This would have been shortly before he left for his job three hours away in Broomfield. To add to suspicion, in one of the many interviews Barry gave, investigators told him that they had cell phone data showing that he went the wrong way on Highway 50 in the morning when he left for Broomfield. They said he should have taken a right, but the phone data showed he took a left. And they asked him why he traveled in the direction that he would have had to go if he had dumped Suzanne's bike helmet. According to investigators, Barry said he saw a bull elk crossing the road and followed it. Investigators asked him to point to an area on a Google map where he turned his truck around and headed for Broomfield. It was reported to be five miles in the opposite direction. One thing investigators noted was that in every selfie Suzanne took when she was mountain biking, she always had a hydration backpack and typically sunglasses. These items were actually found in her car the day she went missing. Also in the car was her driver's license and credit cards, and only her phone was missing. Four months later, although multiple searches had taken place, Suzanne had not been found. Her brother came into town and organized a large group to conduct an extensive five-day search of thousands of acres of land around the house, but found nothing. Once Barry came under the scrutiny of investigators, they went to Broomfield and collected all the video from ring or commercial cameras that they could find. What they were able to see was Barry at various dumpsters in the Broomfield area dumping bags of trash. And Kath, I think it was around five dumpsters that they saw him at. Investigators told Barry, this looks like you're getting rid of evidence. And Barry said, no, no, I'm not a criminal. I'm just cheap. I was disposing of job site trash rather than paying for disposal. Barry also raised eyebrows when he began selling property. According to Lauren Scharf of Fox 21 News, 10 months after Suzanne went missing, Barry sold their family home in March of 2021 for $1.65 million. Kath, this was a $50,000 increase in what they had paid for it in 2018. He also sold a two-acre vacant lot in Colorado's Longhorn Ranch subdivision 
which he purchased in June of 2020, just one month after Suzanne went missing. In February of 2021, Kath, Barry sold the property for $150,000, despite the fact that he had paid $165,000 for it. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. On May 5th, 2021, almost a year after her disappearance, Barry Morphew was arrested for the murder of his wife and the judge denied him bail. There was no body, no blood, no murder weapon and no eyewitnesses, but he was charged with first degree murder, tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence, possession of a dangerous weapon and attempting to influence a public servant. Do you know what that last one was about? I have no idea. I'm guessing, and it's just a guess because I really didn't see this explained, although in the 131-page search warrant affidavit, it might have been there. But I'm assuming that because he was a firefighter, he knew people. That's true. So I don't, I don't know. Anyway. And by the way, if you didn't catch that derision in Kathy's voice when she said 131-page affidavit, it was there. <laughs> I was extremely bitter writing this episode. How do you synthesize that? <laughs> She was indignant as an attorney. That's right. And as a podcaster. <laughs> and this 131-page affidavit that accompanied the search warrant was complete with an allegation that Barry was having an affair with a local resident. According to an article by Jennifer Campbell Hicks of Nine News on September 17th, 2021, this is close to five months after Barry was arrested and placed in jail, a four-day preliminary hearing took place. And a preliminary hearing is where the judge decides if there's sufficient evidence to hold Barry over for trial. And Kath, I am assuming they didn't have one sooner than this because his legal team needed to actually do some investigating. After 20 hours of testimony, the judge determined that there was sufficient evidence to hold Barry Morphew over for trial. However, during the testimony, evidence came to light that caused the judge to allow Barry the opportunity to bail out of jail. 
the testimony involved a discussion of DNA of unknown males on various pieces of evidence. Such information implied an alternative killer and did not warrant the denial of bail that was previously imposed. According to Jennifer McRae of CBS Colorado, on September 20, 2021, just three days after the preliminary hearing, Barry posted a cash bond of $500,000. A cash bond is where you basically put up all the money, the court holds it in trust, and if you are found not guilty, they refund it. It's called exonerating the bond. So if he'd been found guilty, they would have kept the money? They would have probably kept some of it. And honestly, I don't know how they determine how much they're going to keep, but if you're found guilty, they can keep some. After the preliminary hearing, the judge ordered that jury selection would begin on April 28, 2022. Barry was fitted with an ankle monitor and left jail with his daughters who were overjoyed at his release. They have been his biggest supporters. During a pretrial hearing in January of 2022, the defense received over 23,000 pages of discovery. Much of it, according to them, was highly exculpatory, meaning favorable to Barry Morphew. This was information that they had not been previously given. All of this discovery was provided late and should have been disclosed well before the preliminary hearing months prior. And by the way, Calf, this case had also been transferred to Fremont County. There was way, way, way too much publicity in Chafee County, and there was very obvious distrust and animosity of Barry Morphew. It was reported by Barry's attorneys that the prosecution was issued multiple discovery sanctions for not handing over discovery in a timely fashion and after the court ordered disclosure of evidence. So in April of 2022, just a couple weeks before trial, the defense made a motion to dismiss the case or exclude evidence from the trial based upon the prosecution's continued failure to comply with the court's discovery orders. The judge wrote that the prosecution repeatedly missed deadlines and failed to turn over important information during discovery. According to the defense, the prosecution intentionally withheld massive amounts of exculpatory evidence throughout 2021 as well as 2022. However, the judge did not dismiss the case. Rather, the court found that the actions of the prosecutors were not willful. The judge said they were negligent and bordering on reckless and he punished the prosecution by excluding 14 expert witnesses at trial. On April 19, 2022, nine days before jury selection was supposed to start, the prosecution filed a motion to dismiss the case without prejudice. Now, in Colorado, the prosecution must make a motion to get permission from the judge to dismiss a criminal case, so they can't go off all willy-nilly just dismissing cases here and there. It must be a public request, and they must explain why they want to do so. I like that, actually. I do, too. I don't know if it would work someplace as congested as L.A. County, but I like the idea that the judge is saying, hey, wait a second, you're working for the people, Mr. Prosecutor, and if you're going to dismiss this case, you got to tell them why. The district attorney represented that she believed law enforcement were close to discovering Suzanne's body, but needed time because the area they needed to search was buried in five feet of snow. The district attorney knew that without a body and with 14 witnesses excluded from testifying, they were at a disadvantage. If they went forward and lost, 
double jeopardy would kick in and they would never be able to retry Barry Morphew again. Double jeopardy doesn't allow you to be tried twice for the same crime. And did you learn with your first year in law school with Kim Kardashian when it kicks into effect? (laughs) No, but I learned it on Schoolhouse Rock. Right, Schoolhouse Rock. Exactly. You're just a criminal. You're only a criminal. (laughs) And you're sitting there in county jail. Okay, good song. I like it. If you have a jury trial, double jeopardy comes into play or it attaches, we should say, when the judge swears in the jury. Or if you're having a trial where there's no jury, it attaches when the first witness starts to testify. So the prosecution had a big risk if they went forward with this trial. Just over a year after the case was dismissed, on May 2nd, 2023, Barry Morphew filed a federal lawsuit against 25 defendants alleging a violation of his civil rights. Members of the district attorney's office, the FBI, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and Chafee County Sheriff's Office were included. Among other things, Barry Morphew alleged that exculpatory evidence was known to the prosecution and not turned over, forcing him to remain in jail for nearly five months and live under the bond for 11 months without probable cause for an arrest. It was alleged that his property was kept after the case was dismissed and he suffered severe emotional and financial damage due to the deprivation of rights. The lawsuit spelled out in detail the most exculpatory evidence. Attached to the lawsuit and referenced throughout was the 131-page affidavit filed to justify Barry Morphew's arrest. BT dubs, the stupid lawsuit was 185 pages. (laughs) I wanted to put forks in my eyes when I was reading it. Like, how do I synthesize this? It's just impossible. I should have told you to write it. Nope. (laughs) I'm not stupid. His civil attorneys took great pains to spell out in detail how investigators pigeonholed him into an unfair arrest without probable cause. So, Kath, as you know, this frickin' 185-page lawsuit spelled out a lot of things. Like it Based li- on the 131-page affidavit? Exactly. Okay, just checking. And it basically took many of the big factual allegations and undid them or explained them. Synthesized them? Exactly, mm. in a much better way than I did here. <laughs> but we're only going to hit the high points. The arrest affidavit mentioned the presence of unknown male DNA on Suzanne's bike seat. In fact, unknown male DNA was found on her bedside table, the stairs, sheets in her dryer, bicycle grips, bicycle seat, handlebars, interior and exterior of her helmet, the front door, and the glove compartment, passenger door, and rear seat cushion of Suzanne's car. Over 70 people, Suzanne's acquaintances, relatives, and law enforcement were excluded as contributors. The swab taken from the glove compartment of Suzanne's car, which provided a partial DNA profile, was submitted to CODIS, the FBI's combined DNA index system. In November of 2020, just six months after her disappearance, FBI agents learned the results. The DNA was a match to DNA from an unsolved sexual assault in Phoenix, Arizona. The next month, December of 2020, They learned the DNA was also a match to an unsolved sexual assault in Tempe, Arizona. Four months later, in April of 2021, Colorado Bureau of Investigation agents were notified that the sample was also a match to DNA from an unsolved sexual assault in Chicago. 
None of this was revealed in the arrest affidavit. And all of that information was given very, very late and after the court ordered them to do so. I know this is crazy. See, I've got a different word, but you know how I feel on some of this stuff. Yes, I definitely do. Kathy gets very cranky off the record when the prosecution does nefarious things. Very cranky. And as well she should. Right, Missy? (laughs) (laughs) The Colorado Bureau of Investigation, Chafee Sheriffs, and FBI believed that Suzanne's car was used in connection with her disappearance, which was another fact not immediately revealed to the defense. Kath, once the case was dismissed, Barry's attorney, and I wish I could remember her name, I feel like it was Iris Layton or Lighton, Iton, something. Anyway, I know her first name was Iris. <laughs> she gave a press conference, sort of an impromptu thing, or at least it seemed to me to be impromptu, where she was railing on the district attorney's office. And I mean railing. And she was basically saying, do your job. You don't get to act special. You don't get a railroad people. You have to do your job truthfully. One of the things she said that was so true She said that the search warrant affidavit read like a tabloid, and it totally, totally did. I felt like it's like they got some law clerk at the DA's office and said, write a persuasive speech riddled with sarcasm and innuendo, because that's what it was. Wow. Yeah, I know. Like, you and I have read a lot of search warrants doing this, and they're very fact-based. But this one, they would say things like, And the phone was pinging at various locations all the while Barry was supposedly running around shooting chipmunks. I mean, like it was ridiculous. If they just stuck to the facts, that stupid 131 pages would have boiled down to 20. (laughs) (laughs) It could have made my life a lot easier. You should offer your services. But honestly, it was really bad. Another item pointed out in the lawsuit was the arrest warrant attached a photo of a pushpin map where Barry's phone was pinging at the house when investigators alleged he was chasing Suzanne around their property, possibly firing a trank dart into her. It showed pings inside and around the perimeter of the house. According to the lawsuit, an FBI expert from the Cellular Data Analysis Survey team told investigators that if Barry were moving around the house like that, he would have had to be moving at 36 to 50 miles an hour from point to point and through the walls of his home. The FBI analyst said the data was unreliable and in an email said a phone can mistakenly be shown moving because different satellites take measurements of the phone, so these measurements do not always perfectly line up. The FBI analyst called this static drift, where a stationary device can be mistakenly shown moving. In this email, which was well before Barry was arrested, The FBI said that data could be inaccurate and unreliable, but, quote, could be used to squeeze Barry during an interrogation, end quote. Another item brought out in the lawsuit was that the affidavit said Barry drove his truck near where Suzanne's helmet was later discovered, but FBI emails showed that this was also static drift and no computer information from the truck telematics supported their theory that Barry turned the wrong way to dump Suzanne's helmet. This totally freaked me out when I read about it. I had never heard that phrase, static drift. Have you? No. I mean, what's crazy is when, you know, you talked about the pushpin map. So picture a map and you literally have different points of this is where Barry was and this is where he was and this was when he was chasing around Suzanne and blah, 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 blah. 
if it's data that we get from a phone, we put so much credence in it. But the simple explanation of multiple satellites pinpointing a stationary item and not always being 100% accurate makes sense. But that's not how we as technology consumers think. Like, it's terrifying. This was terrifying to me. Well, it is. And you think about it. We've gone through so many cases where, especially looking back, it's like, how did they arrest and convict them for murder or put them on death row when they didn't have DNA to connect them, when they didn't have blah, blah, blah. And it's, oh, thank goodness for technology, because now it makes it not 100% ever, but it makes it a much higher percentage than it was back in the 70s, 80s, even 90s. Totally. And this is a game changer. This was really scary. because. Sometimes we treat technology as though it's as stone cold as DNA. Right. Like, God forbid, DNA comes out, you know, 20 years that it's inaccurate, but I know it won't. But what made me reflect after reading all of those damn pages, (laughs) like I was like, how could this happen? The defense attorney really throws shade at the prosecutor's office. For good reason, it sounds like. Sounds like it to me. Okay. So I'm like, how could this have happened? But maybe with all these different law enforcement agencies, even including the Colorado Springs Forensic Department, is there a possibility that when the FBI sent these emails, they were overlooked, misunderstood? I have no idea. To me, it's inexcusable. Well, and you can always try and give the benefit of the doubt, but you would like to think in a murder trial, there wouldn't be that kind of laziness. Correct. But I tend to give the benefit of the doubt because I don't believe in such widespread conspiracies. I don't believe. And yet I do. I know. But I don't believe that different investigators from three or four different agencies conspired in some way. What I do think, however, is that they had a beat on Barry. They think he lied about his and Suzanne's relationship and they went after him hard. And there were these bits and pieces of little weird circumstantial pieces of evidence, but nobody took a step back and sort of like, I don't know. Well, and they were like, this pesky static drift doesn't mean anything because we know right. he's guilty. So this is going to need to help us prove it. Yeah. Maybe they were like, oh, come on, static drift. Right. Give me a break. What's that? And Kath, what's funny is like, we're going through these bits and pieces of evidence that the civil lawsuit sort of explained. There are so many that I couldn't get to them all and nor would the listener want it, but it was pretty incredible. So Regarding the hours that Barry allegedly had his phone in airplane mode to dispose of evidence, the FBI said, nope. (laughs) In an email, six weeks after Mother's Day, when Suzanne went missing, the FBI expert forwarded information to the Chafee County sheriffs that Barry's phone was not actually in airplane mode, but rather powering on or powering off and therefore in airplane mode for less than a minute. Also around the same time, investigators received an FBI cellular analysis survey report that showed Suzanne's phone and computer was active long after the time the arrest affidavit suggests that she was killed. And her phone was never found, correct? Correct. The affidavit claimed that she was killed the day before Mother's Day, somewhere around 2.45-ish, But the FBI report showed that Suzanne's phone was making calls late in the evening on May 9th and in the early hours of May 10th. So the defense attorneys basically say this arrest affidavit falsely states that no phone activity occurred after 2.30 p.m. on Saturday. Suzanne's computer also showed that she was on Pinterest late on the night of May 9th, Saturday, many hours after she was supposedly killed. According to investigators, the computer activity from Barry's F-350 truck 
allegedly showed he was taking steps to dispose of evidence from 3.25 a.m. to 4.48 a.m. However, an FBI report sent to law enforcement in June of 2020, this is just one month after Suzanne went missing, documented that Suzanne was sending and receiving calls well after that time, making the timeline impossible. And Kath, one other thing, the prosecution talked about this dart cap. Well, the defense was like, there was never a dart cap. There was a tip, like a cap, to a hypodermic needle found in the Morpheus dryer, and it was found like four to eight days after Suzanne went missing. But nobody has any idea how long it was there because it looked like it was sort of like wedged, like stuck. Or what it actually came from. Or what it came from. Exactly. That was another thing. There was really no explanation as to why anybody would have had a hypodermic needle. Another thing about the DART evidence, there was no tranquilizer serum found on the Morphew property and they did find a tranquilizer gun, but detectives determined that the gun was not operable and hadn't been used in a long time. So none of that information made it into the arrest affidavit. Is that the 131 page? Bitter, 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 131 <laughs> page. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I like poking the bear. <laughs> On September 22nd, 2023, just over a month ago, Colorado Bureau of Investigation investigators accidentally discovered Suzanne Morphew's remains. Five days later, it was confirmed with dental records. The body was found in Moffat, a small town of about 100 residents. It was found in a flat, scrubby field about 50 miles from where her mountain bike was found. On October 8, 2023, journalist Luke Kenton of the U.S. Sun said that investigators were in Moffat looking for Edna Quintana, a 56-year-old Sewage County, Colorado resident. She is the mother of five who went missing in May of 2023. According to the coroner, Suzanne had been buried in a shallow grave and her bones had dispersed over the years. We will watch and see what happens in this case as we go forward. Kath, one of the things that was really interesting, I can't remember if it was Chafee County Sheriff's or the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, but they specifically said they weren't doing any press updates or news releases. And I'm sure it's because they're all involved in a lawsuit. You know what? I hadn't thought of that. My thought was they just didn't want to deal with all the blowback they're going to get. But I'm sure you're right. It's you the know, lawsuit. And part of me thinks like, OK, how are they going to handle this? They have to bring in. I mean, they don't have to have to, but they should be bringing in a different agency to do all of the, although they are in a different agency, they're in Sewage County. So who knows? In other words, you can't have the same people that you're suing. Investigating this. Exactly. Watch it happens. <laughs> I know. Seriously. You know, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> According to CBS Colorado, the following statement was released by Barry Morphew's attorneys. Barry is with his daughters, and they are all struggling with immense shock and grief after learning today that their mother and wife, whom they deeply love, was found deceased. They had faith that their wife and mom would walk back into their lives again. This news is heartbreaking. Neither the DA nor the authorities notified Mallory and Macy Morphew about the recovery of their mom. This statement ended with, the Morphews would appreciate their privacy during this deeply emotional and personal time. Suzanne Morphew's siblings also released a statement saying, 
The Mormon family would like to thank all involved for the discovery of our sister Suzanne. Over the last three years, countless hours have been spent looking for Suzanne by a determined group who have never given up hope that she would be found. The memories of her gentle spirit and wonderful smile have been a constant presence since her disappearance to all who knew and loved her. The family then thanked investigators and said, We look forward to finding long-awaited justice for Suzanne in the successful prosecution of those involved in her disappearance. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you joined Patreon already. Money, money, money. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't joined Patreon, go to patreon.com. Take a look. We have five tiers. We have three tiers. <laughs> what? I said that last time. You keep saying that. <laughs> Apparently one day we're going to have five do you, tiers. Are you cheating on me? Do you have another podcast? <laughs> I do and another Patreon. <laughs> but good luck finding which one it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but go take a look. We have three tiers. Hopefully one of them will work for you. And if you aren't following us on social media, we're at Killer Destinations Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Nicely done. That took me a second. <laughs> say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 